All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tavern Voices podcast. My name is Kevin King, and with me, as always on the show, is the incomparable Tyler Crawley of the Tyler Crawley Show fame and other various points of interest that people may have heard of him from. Uh, it's good to good to hear your voice, Tyler. How have you been? Good, good. I think we should call this uh, Tyler Crawley, the Tyler Crawley Show After Hours, if you'd be down with that branding. We keep on, we keep our original after hours branding, but we just we add we add just the Tyler Crawley part. So yeah, you know I'm I'm always down with whatever. You know I mean <laughs> at this rate we've done three in six months, so we can call it whatever. That's true. That's whatever. true. Yeah, I mean it, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. It's continuity's not not our strong point right now. It's not, but you know in true ambitious fashion, we were just talking about increasing the amount of shows that we do. So. Well, it's, there's, it's there's always that on the horizon. Well, it's always better to be um, ambitious, you know, than not ambitious. Even if you don't follow through, right? What do they always say? Aim for the stars. Worst case scenario is you hit the moon or something like that. Is that the phrase? So, or is it aim for the moon? No, yeah, aim for the moon. Course, land above the stars. <laughs> exactly. You know, but but either way is 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 pretty close to being fair. That's true. Um, but I've, I've actually always hated that because that's like saying just shoot down range. If you don't hit the target, you'll just hit the dirt mound. And that is awful marksmanship advice. I don't know. So, I know nothing about shooting, so I'll take your word for that. I know. You you're I thought you were a gun expert now. I own a gun. You know, everyone has to start somewhere. <laughs> you've you've gone in the right direction though. I do. I own a handgun. And I went hunting for the first time last year. So, yeah, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm assuming better. not with the handgun, though, right? No, no, I actually had a really awesome shotgun that someone let me borrow. Uh, it was a Beretta, Beretta shotgun. And I actually was pretty good. I mean, considering that was like the third time I'd ever used a shotgun. And I was actually a pretty, I actually won, me and a buddy of mine, we did a, uh, 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 I guess it was, Shooting, we were shooting clay, and me and him were partnered up, and we beat this other uh, team. And so I was actually pretty happy that we actually won. I mean, it wasn't like we were competing against like the most amazing people ever, but uh, the fact that was the third time I'd ever shot a shotgun, I was pretty happy with it. That makes that makes me so proud, and especially because uh, I'll be the first to admit I'm awful at clay shooting. I did it one time, and I just thought that that maybe the gun wasn't working. I don't know. I couldn't hit anything. But. Well, that actually happened. So the first, so the second time I ever had a sh- now the first time I'd ever had a shotgun. This should be noted. I was, I think, thirteen years old, and uh, me and my dad had gone to the homestead, and I w- we went skeet shooting, and basically I never was alone. I mean, I was twelve, and so the guy basically was sort of holding the gun for me and telling me when to pull the trigger and guiding the gun. So that that doesn't even really count. So the second time after that. Uh, before this hunting trip, the guy that let me borrow the gun said, I'm going to take you out and, sh- and to shoot just so you're somewhat proficient and at least have an idea of how the gun works. And so we go out and we do, you know, like the, uh, I can't remember. I don't know what it's called, but it's like where you go from the different stages of shooting. You go in like a half circle. Um, you shoot the different stages. Like the, they come up, they're down. It's basically like, I guess like the industry standard when it comes to shooting skeet. And, it's similar to duck hunt. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, somewhat similar. And we go through the whole thing. I don't hit one, not one. And they're watching me shoot and they're like, man, you're so close because they can see the pack. And they're like, you're so close. I can't believe you haven't hit anything yet. And so I'm just like, all right, whatever. And um, I'm like, I guess I'm, just, I guess I'm just not that good. So whatever, that's fine. Uh, I, I've accepted my awfulness at shooting. 
And so uh, right after I finish, uh, the gentleman listening to me borrow his gun. His son was there with his 16-year-old girlfriend. Um, and her second time shooting, she hits the, cl- hits the clay. <laughs> I was like, wow, thank you for showing me up. I appreciate that. But we found out uh, when they were looking at actually changing, I guess, the chokes on the gun that he had actually uh, set it up for some precision shooting. And so the, the settings were way, way uh, too, I guess, precise for what I was supposed to be doing. And so it actually was the gun. It wasn't me. For the first time ever, when someone says that, it actually was the gun. The packs were like too short or whatever it was. I'm going to use that as my excuse then because I've always just <laughs> walked on But it, like, afterwards, they told me that. They're like, you're not actually that bad. And I think that actually gave me the confidence when we went on the hunting trip. Because I was like, oh, I must be amazing. Then I must be like Annie Oakley. So now I'm going to tell you though. Next time I go down and do one of the Riker uh, courses, yeah, and uh, in your neck of the woods, my friend, uh, you're going with me. It's it was an absolute blast. Um, we'll see. <laughs> I don't know if I'm that. I don't know if I'm on that level yet. Hey, man, we'll Ron's we'll a good teacher. You know, it's, it's that. That's what it's all about. That's true. That is true. We. I think you and I both sit behind a desk enough to not be in different categories, <laughs> vastly different categories of our um, training of our training fortitude. That is very true. I'll give you that. All right. Well, enough with uh, guns today with Tyler as we're as, as, <laughs> as well. guns and garden. We will, we'll, we'll resume that next week uh, when we find out more about Tyler's adventures with firearms. That's true. Hopefully they'll all be legal. All they'll all be legal adventures. Always, 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 always staying completely legal. But we do have a bunch of exciting stuff that happened in one very short session uh, at the North Carolina General Assembly today. And I know Tyler is just dying to talk about that. Oh, I am. Uh, I mean, and, and there's a lot of places you can go with this. I think we have to start with uh, Cooper's slush fund. And Let's this just start with the governor's slush fund from an yeah i mean let's just start there (laughs) well it's and the thing is it's such a crazy story because i really and i i will admit this i will give roy cooper and his staff credit because their attitude I, i love the way they're playing this they're playing it like uh yeah of course the governor should have a slush fund like other states do it and it's totally constitutional even though this has never happened in the history of north carolina there's no precedent for this, but they're just, they're so like angry, but not like in a bad way. I mean, they're acting like, oh, I can't believe you would even ask that question. Clearly we have the legality and the constitution behind us on this issue. And it's such a, it's so confident that it it's, I, I don't, I don't think it's a bad, I mean, I think they're going to end up losing, but I do like the confidence that they're taking with this issue and trying to make the Republicans look just like, oh, I can't believe you would question this when clearly this is constitutional, even though they have really no, no history or precedent or anything to back them up on it. But their confidence—it's—it's—it's—it's kind of—it's—I think it deserves some credit. Well, I mean, I don't think anyone can say that this administration hasn't been confident so far. I mean, how many challenges has he lobbed at the legislature so far and lost? So I think that they—they they feel like they know what they're doing and they're very confident in their decisions. But I don't think they're necessarily the right decisions to make. No, and you know they've lost. I mean, they have won a couple times, but their wins are always so uh, temporary because the the court will be like, "Well, you won," but the only reason you won was because of this, and then the GOP goes, "Okay, we'll change that," and they go, "Yep, that counts." <laughs> so now you guys are the ones that 
uh, if you put that into law, we won't be able to challenge, you know, that, that that'll stand up. And so their wins have been mostly sort of technical and temporary. Uh, this one I think is, is going to be the same. I mean, they might find a court that might be like, well, technically the con, you know, this, this isn't a fine or whatever. So I guess it doesn't fall into that category, but I mean, there's a reason that Congress appropriates money and uh, I think it should be noted that the you know, former governor, Pat McCrory, has been pretty outspoken on this. Uh, he's even said the GOP shouldn't take the money. So even if the GOP finds ac- gets access to it, he says they should give the money back because I think he's right that it sets a bad precedent where it's basically telling com- – it's basically pay to play. I mean, they may have found a legal way to do that, but it's basically pay to play where we're telling companies that, hey, if you give us you know, money, then we're going we're gonna to okay your permit. And I'm not, a, I'm not a huge environmentalist, but you know that's a little worrisome when we're basically selling access to North Carolina. I'm just not a fan of that. I, I think that's that, that is not something we should be doing. And so even if the Republicans do get control of the of the slush fund, I think I think McCrory's right that they should just give the money back. I think I think it's a it's a it's a bad precedent to set. You know, I, I'll be perfectly honest. I hadn't really thought about it that way. It, it moves so quickly to going from here's a slush fund to now let's uh, appropriate the money towards education that is going to be affected by this pipeline. Yeah. Then obviously I see the the political angles of this of saying, okay, well, not only should he not have had this money, but now are you going to actually say it shouldn't go for education? So I get, you know, I, I get that part, but I hadn't really thought about the fact that that it is pay for play. And I mean, is it different than all of the other economic games that they've been playing with all the incentives for different corporations and everything like that? Well, no, I mean, that's, 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 I mean, this is basically incentives in reverse where instead of paying companies to come here, companies are paying us to come here. And I mean, it's the same, it's the same argument though, is that it, it, it puts the government in the driver's seat of, economic development, which should never be the case. Uh, companies should, you know, cause it's funny the same day, all this is going on. Governor Cooper comes out and says, you know, we need an educated workforce. That's how we win companies like Amazon. And it's like, Oh, I agree. So why do we give them? In- like, so why are we giving them incentives? Because you, whenever we give a company incentives, you always argue that's the only reason they came here. They wouldn't have come here if we hadn't given them incentives. So if incentives are the number one thing, then, then I say, I, and this has been my argument from day one, if incentives are number one and education doesn't matter, then let's stop funding our schools at the rate that we're funding them and, and transfer that money, reallocate it to incentives and go, hey, if we have stupid people in North Carolina, but hey, if we give them money, they'll come here, then that's a good use of the money. But if you're telling me that education is the most important thing, then let's stop using the money on incentives and put it into education. But Cooper needs to decide, is it education or incentives why people are coming here? And if it's incentives, I mean, I'm, I'm still against it. But then, okay, let's stop funding our schools then. Um, if you're going right. to tell me that's all that matters is incentives. There has to be a certain point where you have an honest conversation about what what it is because this all of this news came right on the back of just two weeks ago, uh, Roy Cooper saying that we should not lower the personal income rate one more time uh, next year yeah. in 2019 so that we can have more money for education. And then he's running the slush fund, which he could have put towards education. So we'll, you know, I, I, I have to say on conservative principles, I completely agree with with what you were talking about with the, the precedent there. I think that the issue is, is 
is he really that concerned about education or is it about the incentives? And that's where the conversation hasn't gone there at all. Well, I think in, and this is this, this is same for any politician, you know, because McCrory was, you know, he even admitted it. He didn't like incentives, but you have to do it. I think I, I, you know, I even remember, I think I talked to him about that. I've talked to local politicians about that. And that's their, their argument is, you know, especially Republicans. We don't like incentives, but it's part of the game. So you got to do them. But they like him at the same time because they can go to the ribbon cuttings and everyone kisses their butt and goes, oh, man, we came here because of the incentives. And so it looks like what? It looks like government is responsible. And in this case, this certain politician is responsible for these jobs and for this company. And so politicians love that, Uh, even though there's never been one single economic study that has ever found that incentives have actually produced anywhere near what they're always projected to do and if they're actually worth it. But And politicians are always, oh, we don't like them, but I think they kind of do. Um, and that's why Cooper, it doesn't matter how much evidence exists that, they, that they're not anywhere near as valuable. He likes going to the ribbon cuttings and, hey, that's the reason he's being called the jobs governor is because of all these ribbon cuttings he goes to and all these pictures and all these companies saying we're here because of the incentives that Roy right. Cooper gave us. And so – they, you know, they act like they don't like him, but at the same time, they really do. I mean, it's even Trump the other day. I know we're going to get national stuff later, but you look at what Trump was, you know, highlighting. Look at all the jobs, and, and and the argument from his administration was, look at all the jobs that we've created. Like you guys didn't create anything, right? Republicans don't believe that. Democrats believe that, but Republicans don't believe government creates jobs. They can, they can hurt jobs. They can, they can kill jobs, but they don't create jobs. The government has never created a single job that the private sector wasn't responsible for. And um, politicians, I think, like incentives because they can then go, oh, look, look, we did that. So they, they pretend they have to like them, oh, they like them. No, that's exactly what they do because both sides play this game. It's And I think that's what's funny about this slush fund discussion is that you have his base who, if, if, if you just replaced Cooper with McCrory, this would be a totally different narrative, right? So, but at the same time, over the last 15 years, since we've seen the major switch in, in party politics here in the state, you have incentives going from one direction to the other. You had the film incentives and the left was for it and then the right was for it. And then, well, well, part of both parties are for it and part are against it. And it just depends on who's in charge to say which particular incentive package they want to support. And I, I think that you hit the nail on the head with that one that no matter that they enjoy the incentives, even the ones who say that they're against it, when it comes down to the photo op, they're not going to turn it down because they need, because everything is now viewed in election cycles. That's really what it comes down to. Everybody is trying to gain as many political points as they can in about a a 16 month period. So the last eight months they can campaign. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's what, I mean, it's it's also incentives are tangible. Um, So when they go to a ribbon cutting, and they go, look, we did this. This is us. We did this. But if you cut taxes and decrease regulations, the effect on the economy is somewhat um, – it, it's not the same. Oh, it's yeah. Anyway. And so they can't, yeah. they can't go, hey, look, that company started because we gave that guy a tax cut uh, or he made more money and then he was able to you know, save money and then start his own business or go to the bank and get a loan. And it's – you can't touch it. You can't feel it. Um, unlike, like I said, an incentive where you can go, Ooh, that money went directly to that company and that company created X amount of jobs. And so it's, it's so much easier to put in a brochure or to put on their website, 
uh, or to talk about when they're being interviewed than to say, oh, well, look, we, we cut you know, taxes by X amount and then therefore the economy got better because that's precisely what, you're, what, what we've seen in North Carolina is the big debate. Why is, it, why is North Carolina doing well economically? Is it because of national or is it because of what we're doing statewide? You really can't you – can, you can theorize, you can have a hypothesis, but you can never, you can never 100% say, yes, this is what caused it. And it makes it difficult for politicians. But if, you, if, if, it, if it's you know, something direct, you can go, ah, look, I did that. And so it's also easier for politicians. Uh, it's an easier argument to make than having to make a bigger economic argument. Right. And it's also a smaller fight. I mean, if, if you're a true fiscal conservative and you say, I want to cut everyone's taxes by a margin that that would be more than what Pelosi calls crumbs, then what happens is that takes a big chunk out of the budget. So you have to yeah. fight really hard for that because everybody likes their own spending because everybody, no matter what party you're in, it, it's all about the pork. So what happens is it's much easier to allocate $500,000 for a special project or incentives than it is to cut revenues by, you know, say a hundred million dollars to have a substantial tax cut. Yeah, it's it's which is is the juice worth the squeeze? And I think that's what we run into. Well, you're seeing that right now at the national level, um, where it's like, hey, let's cut taxes, and then no one really wants to cut spending because it, the same thing with same thing with incentives, where everyone actually they don't like incentives, but they really do. It's the same thing with spending where Republicans act like, oh, we're against spending, but they love spending because they like giving stuff away. I mean, and it's not necessarily in the whole, you know, cliche talk radio, Democrats or Santa Claus, but it's it's allowing banks to provide small business loans. It's the government guaranteeing mortgages. It's all these things that the government does that has allowed it to, you know, get its tentacles into everything. Uh, and so if you slow down government and shrink it, it hurts those programs out there. And then whoever does that looks like the bad guy. And we're, we're in this place right now where I mean, even Republicans don't want to cut spending. I mean, they still want to cut taxes, but they don't want to cut spending. Um, but I do now with regards to things the government should be doing. Education is one of those things. Uh, and recently the general assembly was trying to decide what they wanted to do with class size. And I'm interested on your take on this issue, because I don't, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not as, cause I don't have, you know, I don't have children and I mean, you don't either, but <laughs> I was about uh, to say, I but I, I mean, I, I, I have really not been involved in this debate other than some local people have been upset about it. Um, but I just, because I don't have children and also because I didn't go to school in North Carolina, or I didn't even, to be honest with you, I didn't go to public school. And so it's a, it's a, it's a very different debate about the size of the classes. Um, and a lot of these debate that I'm really so far removed from, I, I think it gives me a really difficult perspective. Cause I'm just like, I, I, I really have no skin in the game. Um, where at least you went to North Carolina schools and maybe you have more of a perspective on class size. Um, so I, I'm interested on your take on well, it. Well, you are, you are absolutely correct. I am a a veteran of the North Carolina public education system, both K through 12 undergrad and now graduate school. And I, I like to think of myself as a survivor. I'm not sure that it's, it's serving everyone properly, but all of that aside, I think that this discussion is another one of those uh, misdirection things. And this is probably one of my biggest frustrations is 
everyone can look at the current state of the education system and say it is not it is not succeeding it is not excelling no one is saying you know what everything is working so well our students are so prepared our workforce is so prepared no one is saying that in fact every year it comes out that more and more students are having to go into remedial classes in college because they're not getting the basic uh, you know basic reading and and math skills in in our K through 12 schools right so th this is stuff that we know but then every time the general assembly tries to make a change to the status quo it is met with great resistance in fact education is one of the biggest dings they get i mean every election cycle they're not going to win over certain groups and i think educators as a whole have been a very staunch opponent of the general assembly since uh 2011. yeah that being said i, th I think that was a very short summation that being said the one of the things that has been proposed to the legislature for years now is that they keep saying we need smaller classroom size. We need smaller classroom size. Every funding discussion talks up, you know, per pupil spending and how many are in each class. That has been a major topic of discussion. So what happened is the General Assembly has listened, just like they've continued to increase the overall education budget after it dipped in 2009. It's gone up every year to record amounts of, of spending that they came in and instituted classroom size caps by saying, okay, you want smaller classroom sizes. That's fine. Let's cap the amount of students in a classroom. Now with that becomes crazy math problems, right? Because you've got different size schools. If you're a major school and you have 10 kindergarten classes, it's a lot easier to amortize the students versus a rural school that has one kindergarten class, right? What do you do if you have 19 students in a 18 room cap and you only have one teacher? Right. Do you have to hire an entire other teacher? And, and so it becomes complicated. You following me? Yeah. Well, no, I, I think that the the major problem that you run into and, you know, interestingly enough, I had Mark Johnson on the show last week uh, and we were this is we were this is one of the issues we were talking about uh, or, or really more of a general discussion about what is the role. And that's why there's currently a lawsuit is that who should control the schools in North Carolina, this, this, uh, the school board. Uh, the state school board or the superintendent. And he's currently trying to sort of uh, change the way that it was, or at least the general assembly did. And then the school board based sued saying that they should be in control of it. But so my question for him was that most people think that the local school board should be in control of a number of these decisions. Mm -hmm. And he was like, no, I, I agree. And he, he said that pretty much his job the way he looked at it was to facilitate the local school boards and what they want to do. If they want to do something, he wants to be there to support them. But there are certain things such as allocating funding um, and certain guidelines and do we want to have certain standards that the state probably has to be involved in. I mean, I guess in a perfect world, they wouldn't. But we do know that, that we do have a central government and the central government uh, or at least the state government provides the funding. And so if you're providing the funding, there, there needs to be a certain amount of oversight to make sure that the money's being used properly. Now, it's his point was, if you want to, and now I can't remember if it was him or it might actually have been Dan Forrest. <laughs> I, I don't want to miss, I don't want to misattribute the quote, but it might have been Dan Forrest. But it was sort of the argument is, is that okay, if you want the state to be removed from the local decisions, then some of the money is going to also be removed, and then they're going to have to make up. So, if you want sort of like if you want autonomy, you know, as as most you know teenagers find out when they get into fights with their parents. As the parents always say, under my house, these are my rules. If you want to go live somewhere else, that's fine. But And I, I sort of look at the education system that way. So if local municipalities want state dollars, 
um, and want extra state dollars, then they're going to have to meet some of the guidelines set by the state. But the more that they can do on their own, and I would actually support, you know, providing and maybe less taxes going to the state government, more staying local. I mean, I, I, I would totally be on board with that. But whenever you have a, a, a central government that's providing funding, there's going to have to be oversight and there's going to have to be some things that they decide. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation in any situation like that. I completely agree. And you led me right into what I think is the crux of the major education battle right now. And the bill that passed today, House Bill 90, does two things majorly for this. One one is, talking about the classroom size, it takes that abrupt, as of now, you can only have 18 students, right? And it, it, it has a phase system. So now it's not just a direct chop to the school system. They have time to kind of adjust for it, right? Yeah. So that that's the first part. But the second part goes into exactly what you were just talking about, is who does have control? And the problem is, is for lack of a better phrase, the local school systems have been playing a game. They've been playing a game for a very long time. And what that is, is that the state appropriates their money saying that, that indeed the local school system knows what's best. They know how their system works. They know um, who, their, who their population are. They know all of these specific elements. So we're going to give them discretion. So here's X amount of dollars for your school district based on how many students you have and your tax base and all these other formulas. And so then the problem is, is as standards have been an issue, so as they change what is required of that school district, the school is still moving those funds around and playing political games with it. I don't know if you recall, I believe it was in the 2015 session, there was the big uproar that the General Assembly was cutting out all of these teacher assistants. And yeah. that all the school districts were going to be without TAs and that, I mean, we, we were getting bombarded with emails and phone calls. Well, the General Assembly didn't touch teacher assistance. What it did is it required them to do, to spend their money where it was supposed to be going in the first place. And they were choosing then to not spend that money on teacher assistance. And that is exactly what is happening now is that they're currently getting this money for students but they're spending it in other ways. So when they're asking them to hire their teachers to, to account for the students, they're saying, well, now we're not going to be able to have art class and PE class and all these other things, which they're already getting the money for anyway, but they're, they're treating it as this very liquid fund to where now they're having to be accountable for how they're spending the money and they're playing it. They're playing a game. They're turning around and saying, well, now, you know, we're, our kids aren't going to have art when the money is there for art. So what this bill does is really, um, really specifically kind of lay out that, okay, we're going to give you this money, but we're going to have to tell you where it's going to go because you're playing these games with it. And it's not fair to the kids to be worried about art or PE or to be in oversized classrooms when we're giving you all of this money that you need. Well, I mean, that's what, that's what Democrats do. I mean, that's why whenever you hear about cuts to, you know, local governments, it's always like, well, I guess we're going to have to get rid of some policemen. Like, really? That's the first thing you cut? You're not going to cut the, uh, you know, funding to like an arts program that, you know, teaches kids interpretive dance after school that costs like $100,000 a year. You're going to cut three police officers instead of that. And, and that's what they always do is they always threaten to cut the most important things first. Uh, and then everyone goes, oh, no, oh, no, no, we have to fund them completely and give them extra money. And so they know that's why it gets attention. So when they threaten, oh, I guess we're going to have to get rid of PE and art and all this stuff. No, you don't have to, but they're they're doing that because they're smart. 
Uh, and so I'm glad to see the General Assembly is responding by going, okay, fine, but guess what? We're going to we're we're allocate this money specifically so you can't do that crap anymore because that's what they do. We know they, they do that. They do that all exactly. the time. Exactly. I'm going to quote specifically from the, the bill summary on, on the legislation that passed today. And, and under part four, it changed how the transfers can go between funds. So one part um, – It says part four would restrict transfers out of the program enhancement for kindergarten through fifth grade teacher allotment. So the enhancement programs, art and PE, and with the exception that the positions could be converted from program enhancement to classroom teachers. So if they do decide that they need teachers more than they want PE or something else, we're giving local flexibility to that. But it says starting in 2021, positions could not be transferred out of classroom teacher allotment. So what they were doing is taking this money that was supposed to go to classroom teachers, creating art programs, and then asking for more money. And that's just one example. So I think when, when we talk yeah. about the education system in North Carolina, people have to to look a little bit deeper deeper than just what is the narrative. Because I don't, I don't think it's fair when they play these games when there's a lot of – as we know, education is not – it's not excelling. So we've got to do something different. And every time something different is tried, it is fault tooth and nail as if – the, the status quo is is doing such a great job when it's clearly not. It's it's awful. Well, I mean, I don't even know if I would even say it was awful, but it's just not. We need to update it. Well, and, you know, and sort of like having an old, an old car. I mean, it can it can run, um, but if you get it tuned up and change some things, all of a sudden it's like it's amazing again. And that's what we have to do. And no, the reason they don't is because everything's so entrenched, and because. And also because they automatic, and that's the worst problem that we have with education is that we assume that everyone's negotiating in bad faith and you can't have a negotiation when you do that. So if you know, we think that the you know, teachers unions are trying to, you know, screw the students uh, for the benefit of the teachers and they assume that we're trying to just kill teachers unions because we hate unions. And so no matter what we argue, they always assume that, no, no, here's what they really want to do. And you can't negotiate with someone who thinks that you're negotiating in bad faith. And that is exactly the overall negotiation is that we both think that the other side is lying about what they really want to do. And that's why we don't get anything done because that's not, you can't have a negotiation like that. You have to have faith in the other side. Oh, I I completely agree. And I did want to make one specific uh, note to, to my comments is that I'm not specifically directing this at North Carolina or attacking anyone in the education profession. I'm saying as a whole, the system that we do, we've been talking about it since the seventies or eighties, how we're failing against uh, international standards. I mean, we've been talking about this for so long, but yet there's no, nobody will step back and say, how can we do this different? How can we reinvent the system we're in? And to your analogy, if you're driving down the road in a car and, and all the kids have to get out and push it at a certain point, then you say, maybe we do need to buy a new car, <laughs> right? Well, that's true. That's true. I don't, I don't know if we've got to that point yet, but um, I mean, because the thing is, is that we still have, I mean, you look at public schools, I mean, you still have great kids that are graduating and are getting an education. Um, the problem is, is that we're the, the percentages have declined or at least remain the same instead of seeing improvements. And especially with technology and everything else advancing the way that it is, the fact that that hasn't advanced in the same way shows that, yeah, we, 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 we got some problems. But the overall system... Um, is still not that bad. I mean, like I said, the fact that it depends on where you are, obviously. I mean, DC, maybe not so great, but I mean, we're, we're still seeing great kids come out of the public school system. And I think charter schools are helping. And I think voucher, I think it, it's, it's, it's all of the above solution. And, you know, the problem is a lot of public school teachers and 
unions see charter schools and, and vouchers as a threat. And that's, that's not good because that's the way it should be. I mean, I mean, it should be in all about all of the above. And like I said, it all comes back to the, the argument that they believe we're negotiating in bad faith. It's hard to negotiate when you think the other side's lying. So it, it makes it difficult. It's all I'll say. Yeah. No, oh, I agree. And, and I think that the, the fact that we do offer education to absolutely everyone is a massive undertaking. I mean, you're talking about populations that are so much more diverse than they were 50 years ago. I mean, we should be, everyone should be saying, we need to start from the ground up with the education program, no matter which side of the, the aisle you're on or which side of the ideological spectrum you're on. It, it, you've got to stop and say, th- this isn't white suburbia anymore that we're educating where Timmy comes home and sits at the dinner table and does his homework. Like we're in a completely different environment. We've got more working parents than ever. Uh, we've got you know more very diverse backgrounds coming into the education system. So I think it's a, it's a massive undertaking. That's what I wanted to, to be clear is I don't think it's easier that there's a silver bullet, but you know, we, we've got to all say, you know, gosh, let's do something different. Right. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think to your point, uh, the families that are still set up that way where little Timmy does come home and do his homework and they're there to help him out. Those are the kids that excel. And the problem is oh, we're seeing absolutely. fewer and fewer of those families because we have single parent households or both parents work and we don't have the same uh, culture and same design that we used to, which is not a bad thing, but it means that we have to change the way that we were, you know, that we were sort of uh, functioning. Uh, at least our education system was, so we have to change that, uh, but still keep the fundamentals because like I said, those, those seem to be working because we do have kids that are excelling in the system, but then realize that there are other students that don't fall into the traditional category um, and so if we can fix that, then we'll be good. But that's why I said, I think it's an all of the, I think it's an all of the above solution where charter schools and vouchers play a big part. Oh, I, I can completely agree. And, and I want to get the, the last word to you on this subject is, do you think since last episode, you did predict that Roy Moore would, Moy, whoever Roy that guy Moore. was, Roy Moore <laughs> would not, uh, win Louisiana and you were right. <laughs> You are you are vindicated. Do you think that the fifty seven million dollars of Roy Cooper's slush fund will actually end up going to the state and to education, or do you think they'll just pull the money out now that it's not going to him? Well, I, I think the what bigger think? question is: Does he get to keep it? Is he going to win that battle? Which I think he will not. Um, I think eventually some court's going to say, "Listen, the Constitution says that the state legislature allocates money." And it, 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 and the fact that this scenario has popped up, and to be honest, if I'm Roy Cooper, I think he's starting to realize that this story is not going away. I think maybe he thought, oh, the Democrats, you know, look at me cover. The press might give me some cover, but this story is not going away. I mean, it's it's still getting attention. It's still driving headlines, and I think at some point, the last thing he wants is, you know, it's, it's almost kind of like what's happening nationally, like. If you're Trump, the last thing you want to do is give the Democrats an excuse to open and look into more things and, and look into more uh, more investigations. And the last thing I think Cooper wants is them to, is for Republicans to go, you know what? This looks sketchy. Let's look into this. How did you get this money? How do the negotiations go down? Uh, start subpoenaing, subpoenaing people. Um, I don't think he wants that. So I think he might go, you know what? This one, this was this. We went about this the wrong way. I'm going to give this money back. Uh, and now I don't know, is the general assembly going to take it over? I think if they're given that option, they're going to take it because like I said, 
a lot of Republicans have principles on 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 this type of thing, but when it comes to getting sixty million dollars, they can do whatever they want with. It's hard to say no to that. So I think at some point Cooper stops this fight because I think he's worried about them looking into these negotiations and they're going to find out that there was a quid pro quo and that could that could be big time problem for him. Uh, I don't know what type of law that would be breaking, but I have to assume there's got to be something that says the governor is not allowed to shake down companies uh, in order to get a permit. I mean, he's basically arguing that that wasn't part of the negotiations, but I don't think there's any person on the planet who thinks that that's even close to being true. I mean, it might not be directly true, but there's got to be something. Um, They might uncover something, and I think he's worried about that. So I think at some point he'll sort of – give this money either to the general assembly or back to the company. And then what happens after that? I don't know. Um, but I think at some point he says, okay, this was wrong. And, and then says the money should go somewhere else. But I think at some point he's, he's going to say, okay, I should have done this. All right. Well, I'm glad you finally gave an answer because I want you to know this, Tyler, until this is called the Tyler Crawley after hours show, you answer the question that I <laughs> ask you. You don't, you don't just answer the question that you wanted to answer because you, you did a perfect pivot on that. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that. But you got to run yeah. to an answer. So that's fair. That's, that's fine. Yeah, that's I mean, fine. Like, I, I, I have Eventually no idea. Um, I mean, I do think that going back to your. It's okay <laughs> for you to say that from time to time. Well, I'm working on one day. I know it doesn't happen often. And that's what happens when you're a politician is that. You you go. Oh, that's a good question, and then you just pivot to whatever you wanted to talk about. And so I've learned. Hey, it was beautifully <laughs> done. No no hatred on this side. Very very well done. Um, so do you want to talk about in the last few minutes the uh, the the large Republican spending? Oh my gosh, right this is probably the most disappointing. <laughs> Sorry, we're out of time. But no, I'm just. No, I mean, I, I wish. I wish. That was what was happening in, in Washington where it's like, oh, you know what? We're out of time. We're not going to be able to, to in, you know, the, we're already you know five months into the fiscal year. So we're just not going to be able, we're just going to, I would have rather them just done a CR. I mean, that was sort of my argument was just continue doing CRs and not increase spending. And no, instead they decided to do this grand compromise that just blows the deficit up. And it's just, it's, it's insane. And it's, it's so disappointing because like I always say, I'm a pragmatic conservative. I understand that, you know, they're not going to go up there and they're not going to cut, you know, food stamps. They're not going to cut welfare. They're not going to cut all these programs. But can you just not increase them? That's all. That's all. Just not increase. And they couldn't even do that. And not only did they not not increase, they increased by a ton. Like it wasn't like, oh, we're only going to do a 1% or 2% adjust for inflation. I mean, they by 10% increased some of the most ridiculous programs in Washington and this is after we cut taxes, so the revenue is going to be down. And it's just, I, it's just very disappointing. As someone who, who would like to see some fiscal responsibility, and I mean, and that's that's a very low bar because we have twenty trillion dollars in debt. So, like I said, all you have to do is just not increase spending, and I would have given them a round of applause. And they couldn't even do that. So it's just, I don't know where we go from here. To be honest with, you. I mean, even Ted Cruz was was like, well, I guess I got to vote for this. I mean, Ted Cruz, the guy that's trying to shut the government down, is like, well, I guess I got to increase spending across the board by 10%. Like, what? So I, I guess we're just going to ignore this issue until it blows up in our face. Well, that's my question is, does it even matter at this point? Right? Because 
I recall back. I was yeah. I was trying yeah. to. You might have heard some some clicking on my side here. I was trying I was trying to go back and find our um our national debt back when you and I first got started. You know, back in the uh, the Bush years when everybody's talking about how bad the deficit was going to be, right? So two thousand eight, it was ten trillion dollars. Okay. Right now we're at twenty point two five trillion, something like that. Twenty trillion as of last year. It, it's incomprehensible. It's a, it's over a hundred percent GDP now. We're just printing money, Do, and, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic. Does it legitimately matter? We keep raising the debt ceiling and increasing the deficit and printing money. Does any of it matter, whatsoever? Yes. You think there will be yes. a reckoning at, well, at the, any point? It didn't matter back then because, as you pointed out, in relation to GDP, it was still it, it, it was still it was significant. But it wasn't a budget. Um, it wasn't a, a budget buster. Now it is, and the problem that we're facing, and I mean, we're not going to have time to get into all of this. But the real issue is that we're simultaneously raising interest rates while we're increasing. I mean, we we have never in the history of this country run deficits this size in a good economy. That doesn't make any sense. If it was bad, if we were seeing double digit unemployment and we needed to make up for the lack of private sector spending, then I would say, okay, like even when Obama did it, the Republicans gave him flack for it. But you look back and go, well, maybe we had to do that. We can debate that. But no one is ever going to look back and go, yeah, I'm so glad that we spent a trillion, we went a trillion dollars in the hole while we had 3% on it. And they're projecting it. We're projecting 3% unemployment, the lowest since the Korean War. Uh, we're looking at a stock market that, yeah, is down slightly, but is still historically high. Um, so much we're seeing wages going. I mean, all these great things are happening in the economy. And now the fed is worried about the economy overheating. Why, if our concern is overheating, are we trying to continue to push the economy higher and higher? Because the reality is the feds going the feds job. People forget is to keep the economy in some sort of an equilibrium. You don't want it to get too bad and too good because too good means inflation and they have to stop that. And so they'll have to step in. So why are we borrowing from the future to make an economy stronger when all we know is that if we do that, the Fed's going to have to step in and stop that from happening? I mean, it just it, it, it doesn't make any sense. And that's why the markets are so chaotic right now. They've never seen this much borrowing in a good economy. Well, and that begs the question is where in God's name is all of the money going? Because when you're talking about this huge deficit spending and you're in 2009, 2010, in the midst of the recession, you've got huge drains on social programs, everyone having to, to jump on unemployment and get WIC and assistance. And you've got people uh, obviously not paying taxes because they're all unemployed. I mean, we're talking double digit unemployment. But now what are we spending the money on? If all of that is reversed, well, it's, our expenditures it's should way, way, way down. Is it well, all, is it no, all baby because, boomer? I mean, is it all retiree yeah. benefits? Yeah. So it's the well, greatest it's, generation it's, once again. Is that what you're telling me? Well, no, no, it's not. Well, it's actually the, ba the baby boomers are retiring. Uh, and it's twofold because, and I was just reading about this before we, we um, recorded this podcast. Uh, they said the coming disaster is not the volatility in the markets, but pensions and not, private pensions, which we've already seen a reckoning for that, but public pensions. I mean, you have these pensions accounts. I mean, North Carolina is like one of the top five pension accounts and we are, I think, 8% underfunded. 
And that we're, we're one of the top five. So you look at some of these other states. Oh yeah. No, no. Is he a billion billion? You're right. right. Um, We're, we're underfunded by, I think it's a couple billion dollars, but you, and and we're one of the top five. You look at these other states. I mean, you can imagine where they are. And once the, and once the stock market stops producing double digit returns, what happens? Well, that's when you get a reckoning and that's what people are concerned about. Then on top of it, you have the fear of social security, which this year just reached a trillion dollars in expenditures. First time a government program has ever reached a trillion dollars. Medicare is significantly imbalanced with money flowing in versus flowing out. We're going to have to, we're going to have to change that. And 80% of our, our spending is entitlements, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, and uh, debt payments. And then the other is 20%, the other, the other 20% that we're having this big debate about in Washington and nobody wants to touch entitlements because, well, we all remember what happened to Bush, which by the way, if we go back and look, where was the stock market in 2005? I think it was what, like 10,000 something like that. If that, well, that, yes, correct. I mean, let's say, let's say, let's say 10 to be, to be, I think it might've even been lower than that. Let's say 10. Everyone was so terrified about putting money in the market because what happened? Well, look at it now. Think about if we would have taken this, the social security trust fund, um, and, and taking it, taking a trillion dollars and put it in the stock market. Privatized it, it would be right now. It's two trillion. And not only that, but we, not only that, but we would have seen the economic, you know, putting that money into the market instead of having to buy treasuries, which the government's the most inefficient way to spend money. I mean, it would have been so beneficial, but yet here we are. Um, and, but when, when Bush talked about that, it ruined his second term. It destroyed everything. And every politician knows that. And so none of them will even talk. About, unless they're in the minority party, like you know, Paul Ryan was all about it, but since he, you know, since he became speaker, uh, and you know, Trump, Trump's not giving him any cover. He refuses to to even allow that conversation, saying he's going to protect seniors, and so we just don't talk about it. But I mean, it's not going to get smaller when baby boomers are retiring by the thousands every single day, and they're living longer, and it's a it's a massive problem, and it wasn't as big of a problem. I think they're saying next or I think within five years, social security will start going into the red. That's why it's a problem because these programs that forever have been surplused are now actually going to start running deficits. And I think within 10 years, we're going to, we're going to deplete the trust fund and then we're going to see automatic cuts with the economy. I mean, it just, it, 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 it's, it's going to be a snowball effect. If, and the, the question is, are we going to cut? It's when is it going to happen, and are we going to we going to do it gradually, or are we going to see automatic twenty five percent cuts across the board, while we're probably already going to be in a recession because of it, and that's going to cause it. I mean, it just the economics is terrifying when you look at it, and so the reason it hasn't been a bigger issue before is because we were never in this we we were never in this situation before, and well, the data I mean, is terrifying. You, you just you just ruined my entire week. <laughs> no, it's so in about three minutes. It is- so depressing. <laughs> and it's like, we have to talk about it because nobody wants to. And we can't just, I mean, it's just, it's, it is, it's, it's crazy depressing. Um, but it's so much better to go, oh, you know, we're going to make America great and we're going to do this infrastructure plan and we're going to do all this stuff. And it's like, everyone's just thinking about right now, but no one's like, all right, what happens in 10 years? What happens in 20 years? Because it's, it's terrifying. And I get why they don't talk about it. You know, I, I don't want to talk about it, but I think that um, I think we should continue this conversation another time I because I uh, I think we do need to talk about it, and um, I I think we've kept everyone long enough. 
but I want to uh, want to give a shout out to everyone who tuned in once again to the Tavern Voices podcast. I'm your host, Kevin King, with Tower Crawley of Tower Crawley <laughs> After Hours, the show that may or may not ever happen. It'll happen. It's, ha- it's and, happening uh, right it's, now. You were just a part of it. I, w- I was just, I'm just a witness to history, my friend. That's all. <laughs> Well, uh, have a good evening, Tyler, and uh, we'll see everyone next week. All right, Kevin. See you, man.